This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I'm very excited to, inter- uh, to introduce Bruce Bartlett. Uh, I'll be honest, when the opportunity to host this event came up, I immediately signed up, uh, given, you know, after the, let's say, unique experience of 2017. Um, here on the second day of the new year, uh, I thought the title of Bruce's book bears some repeating. The truth matters. <laughs> uh, Bruce has worked uh, for two presidential administrations. He is a frequent commentator, an economist, uh, as well as a uh, New York Times bestselling author. In his latest book, The Truth Matters, Bruce has written an accessible, easy-to-use guide that helps anyone fight the incredibly disturbing trend of untrustworthy uh, sources that have captured the nation's attention, especially over the past two years. Bruce's book is already garnering praise. Uh, David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, wrote, Best of all, uh, Bartlett's manual is so accessible and direct that anyone will benefit from it, from high school students to casual news consumers to professional journalists. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming Bruce Bartlett to Politics and Prose. Well, thanks for coming out. Can everybody hear? Is this? Okay. Um, the, the reason, the genesis of this book is that I was not happy about the election results. Uh, I voted for the other candidate. And, uh, and I was thinking a lot about why did this happen. And uh, there's a lot of, I'm sure there must be a ton of Trump books, you know, in the pipeline. I know my friend David Frum has one coming out, and I'm sure there's lots of others. But, uh, you know, I was trying to answer the question, well, you know, why did this happen? And it was quite clear uh, that the media is a key source of the problem. Uh, and I thought about, you know, what I could s- say about this, uh, being that I'm not a professional journalist. I've never worked for a news organization. And, and I, but, uh, but I think precisely for that reason, I have a, a different perspective. And uh, my idea was to... Tr- that people are going to have to work a little harder at getting the news. Uh, it used to be very, very easy during, you know, the lives of many of the people in this room. I know, you grew up. There were three evening news broadcasts, 30 minutes apiece, and uh, the, the newspaper and magazine industries were very strong. Uh, if you subscribe to any major newspaper in any major city, you got a pretty good you know, sub, uh, a summary of the news of the day. And if you watch the evening news, you were up to date. You knew pretty much what you needed to know to, to uh, be a good citizen. Well, th- obviously, that's not true anymore. Uh, things have, there's, there's so many news sources that it's become a cacophony. You know, it, you, you just have so much news coming at you so quickly, so rapidly, so uh, broadly, uh, that, that, that it's too easy to tune out. And, and I know uh, there, I tune out personally a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, my wife plays trivia, and, you know, sometimes we watch uh, Jeopardy, and I'm continually amazed at the common knowledge that I don't have. <laughs> so I'm kind of, uh, you know, more into public policy and, and things of that sort. But, uh, but over the years, I've learned you know, to deal with some of the, the problems in the media in my own way. And I thought I could explain some of these ideas to people 
um, based on an experience that's, that's not necessarily the same as the average person, but more like the average person's experience than, say, a professional journalist. Uh, and so, for example, I've been the source for hundreds upon hundreds of stories, and I know how reporters ask questions when they're talking to a source, trying to get some information out of them. I know how things have changed from the days when you could leak a story to a reporter at five minutes to five in the evening and know that they had a five, hard five o'clock deadline and they'd have to just stenographically take down what you gave them or else lose the story. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous today. You have an around-the-clock news cycle, and one of the things that's changed is that the, the balance of power has shifted from the, the, the reporters, from the news media, to the sources. The sources now have much, much more power than they used to have. And the most obvious example is Donald Trump, who has how many millions of Twitter followers does he have now? I don't know. Well, uh, even the real ones, if you count, you know, are, are well up into the millions, not counting the bots. Uh, and, uh, and he has the ability to not only go around the news media, he, has a, he can go around his own staff. I mean, I worked in the White House for Ronald Reagan, and the idea that Reagan would make a statement on some important policy matter without it being very thoroughly vetted uh, by, you know, dozens of people in the White House and just blurt out some major change in policy, you know, in the early morning hours, uh, you know, uh, when most people are still asleep, it, it was absurd. He was he 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 knew how to read a script, and he understood the importance of producers and directors and screenwriters, of which you know we had essentially the same setup in the White House. The chief of staff was the director, and you know the the speechwriters were the screenwriters, and so on. And he knew how to to uh, give uh, read a good script, uh, and and that's frankly you know I mean a lot of people criticized him for this at the time. They thought he was being insubstantial. But, you know, compared to the president we have today, it would be really nice to have a president who thought about things before he said them and, you know, actually studied an issue before it became policy and allowed his staff to have some input because that's what they're there for and so on. So anyway, I thought about writing this book and, and, and I, I wanted to write something very, very short and simple. My model was a little book that I think most people are familiar with called Elements of Style. I'm sure you sell hundreds of copies a year at least in this store. Uh, you know, tr for anybody who's a writer, it's just a terrific little book because it reminds you of simple rules of grammar that people know but you forget, you know. And God knows you read anybody's Twitter feed, including the president's, and you sometimes wonder whether anybody was ever taught the difference between Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E and uh, things of that sort that seem to be a very, very common mistake that people make. And so I thought I could write up uh, some, some rules about being a, a good media consumer in the 21st century. When you have to work a little bit harder, you can't just read the daily newspaper and feel like you, you've got enough. Because for one thing, the paper, the newspapers, the media in general, have deteriorated enormously in quality, quite frankly. Uh, they don't have the depth of, of staff, the depth of reporting that they once had. 
it used to be that the media were gatekeepers, you know, and, you know, for example, when I first came to Washington in the 1970s, uh, I was advised, you know, concentrate on the New York Times, you know, find the reporter who, the chief economics reporter, whoever it was, and, uh, and really befriend them, get to know them, get them to trust you. And, and they took their gatekeeper function, you know, very, very seriously. And you would have to be thoroughly vetted by a reporter before they, you could tell them something and they would be inclined to believe it with, or rather than disbelieve it. And, uh, and, and, and you had no choice. You know, they, they understood that there was a bottleneck and that they controlled access. And, they, and, and this gave them a great deal of power that, that they used or tried to use uh, judiciously. I remember one, uh, one of the reporters that I dealt with a lot who I still miss is a guy named David Rosenbaum. Some of you may know he was killed rather tragically over in Georgetown some years ago. And, uh, and, and he would write quite often call me up and say, immediately this is you know this is not for an article i'm writing i'm not going to quote you anything like that i just want to try to understand this issue from your point of view and my point of view in those days i was a conservative republican i now consider myself an independent i have no desire to be a member of my former party but uh the uh but uh and it was nice you could have, have a chat with the guy and eventually he would learn to see the world the way you saw it and, and, to, and so that he would at least respect your point of view, even if he didn't necessarily agree with it. Uh, today, you, can't, you don't really have that. Uh, I mean, I still talk to a lot of reporters, but they, they're always on deadline. You know, they, they need a very short, a little bit of your time, a very little bit of information. Uh, and so often you feel like they're just fishing for a particular quote. Uh, to, to balance off maybe something that somebody else said. Uh, I remember once years ago, I was talking to a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, and he kept basically asking me the same question over and over and over again. So I finally said, what is it you're trying to get me to say? And he told me, and I said, well, I agree with that. Just put quotation marks around it. <laughs> Saved a lot of time, you know, because, you know, a lot of times they don't, they're not looking for information so much as they're looking to say something in a particular way because it, it just fits into the story you know, of whatever it is they're trying to, to, to write about. I don't know. But anyway, uh, one of the problems uh, that I've noticed over the years is that when the cutbacks started, I'm not sure precisely when the, the, the news media began its, its serious contractions. Obviously, it's been going on for a long time. But unfortunately, what they tended to do is go around the newsroom and offer buyouts to the most senior people in the newsroom because they were the ones who'd been there the longest through seniority and because they were the best you know they were the, mo the most highly paid so if you were looking to cut payroll you know getting rid of these guys who are close to retirement anyway and it didn't probably take a great deal of inducement to get them to, to retire a little earlier than they planned but one of the things that got lost is a lot of what goes on in, 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 in learning how to be a reporter is very informal. You learn it in the newsroom from your peers and especially from the older guys who've been around forever. Uh, and, and one of the most important things that they would teach you that I don't think they can teach in, in uh, uh, 
journalism school, maybe they can't even teach it in, in uh, police academy, but uh, is just how to tell when somebody's lying. Now, I admit I'm not terribly good at this, but there are people in this world who are, who can just, they just know. They can tell by the inflections in your voice and your body movement and various other things. Uh, they, they just have a gut instinct as to whether you're lying or not. And that's something that reporters really, really need today because a lot of them seem to be, well, frankly, rather, rather credulous. Uh, they, they just take at face value uh, too many of the things that they're told. Now, part of it is deadline pressure. Uh, you, you don't have the luxury of knowing you've got a couple of hours or maybe even a couple of days to, to, to report a story and make sure it's all right because these days you've got so many people breathing down your neck who are who are able to post in real time you know literally one second you know you're writing it the next second people are reading it and unfortunately there's a a race to the bottom in many ways of uh, whoever is first is going to get uh, the perhaps the lion's share of the clicks and the clicks is where the money is and the people who who take to the, the time uh, even an hour or so to, to, to report a story and make sure it, 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 it uh, makes sense, that it's true, uh, you know, they get left in the dust. I mean, we're right down the, store, the street, as most of you probably know, from one of the most ridiculous fake news stories of the 2016 news cycle, the Comet Pizza Place, where uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, having sex with young children in the back room or something and some crazy idiot you know believed this to such an extent he came up here with guns you know to try to rescue the children I mean it's absolutely insane what what people are willing to believe and 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 I think part of it is too is, is too many reporters have adopted the convention that well it's okay to repeat a rumor because it's it's a news it's news it's a fact that it is a rumor you see and so what they end up doing is by reporting some of these stories or seeming to report them but without confirming them uh, they, they lend cre credence or credibility to some of the nuttier stuff that goes on in you know the bowels of, of the internet and and I don't know what we do about that when people are so pressured to to get stuff out quickly to get it and not worry quite so much as they used to have to worry about whether it was really, really right or not. And unfortunately, this has affected, you know, uh, our finest newspapers. Uh, the, the New York Times is really kind of a shadow of its former self in terms of its impact on the media. And, and it's doing pretty well by comparison to a lot of others. I mean, the Washington Post, God only knows where it would be if Jeff Bezos hadn't bought it as a little plaything, you know, to, to use his uh, tiny fraction of his billions on. Uh, but uh, it, it's not, un, it's not rare, unusual in the history of, uh, of journalism and the media for newspapers to be owned by rich people who, frankly, use them for, uh, you know, their own purposes. In, in Britain, you know, the, they had a term called press barons. Uh, uh, who, who own the, 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 the great newspapers of Fleet Street. And uh, their whole thing was to make sure you were on the winning side of the party in the next election because if your guy became prime minister, then you became a knight or, or, or maybe even a lord. And, uh, and, and so that was your payoff uh, for uh, siding with the, the party that won. 
here it's 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 a little different but uh, not too terribly much uh, after all I think it's not coincidental that one of the last living f press barons of the old age is uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, who of course uh, owns uh, many of the most powerful media in the United States and unfortunately he owns the one that uh, Donald Trump gets the, the, the our president gets the vast bulk of his information from and uh, and I just find this uh, you know just incredible uh, I mean uh, and of course it's a two-way street he, uh, the president uses Fox uh, as, a, as, as a weapon against his own political enemies uh, he's given you know many times more interviews to Fox News than to all the other media combined and he seems to be, uh, you know, uh, feel no responsibility to, to, to transparency, to the media as a whole, or the public as a whole, uh, to, to doing things like having a press conference. Does anybody remember the last Trump press conference? I don't. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm only 66 years old, so, you know, I, I but uh, anyway, um, so, so anyway, I, I, I wrote this book, and I, I wrote down a, a lot of seemingly obvious things, but I was following the elements of style model that you do need to remind people of things that they already knew because it's faded, they've forgotten, it's in the back of their minds, and sometimes you need to be reminded of, of the simplest things. Like, for example, clicking on links. Now, everybody knows what a link, I think, I'm sure everybody in this room does, but a surprisingly large number of people seemingly do not know what a link is. I know this because I'm always getting people, you know, when I write something, they'll, they'll you know, send me an email or something and, and say, where's your documentation for this? And I, I'd say, well, if you clicked on the link, you'd, you'd find the documentation. Uh, but uh, on, on the other hand, uh, uh, I learned a few years ago that you have to be very careful about links because I, dis I discovered that my editor was changing them. Uh, now, who? No, very few writers I know. Certainly, I don't go back and check all the links in something you already wrote to make sure that they're right. In this particular case, I had uh, quoted uh, then Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton on some point, and I provided a link that took you to the State Department website to the page where the speech that I was quoting appeared. So it was you know, documentary evidence, a first, you know, a, a primary source document. And then later I needed to find that quote again, so I went to my own article on the page place where it was published and clicked it on, and it took me to some random uh, article about Hillary Clinton from that, uh, that same publication, you see, because their attitude was, we don't want people leaving our pa publication to go someplace else, even if it's the State Department. We want people to stay here. So they, they just picked some random article about Hillary Clinton and stuck that in where I had had a link to uh, this, this primary source document. And up until that, for all I know, they could have been doing that for years because I never would have had any reason to check. It was just coincidence. And, and, but this gets me to a point, which is, you know, the, uh, many writers are, are very, very lackadaisical about using links. And there are some publications, for example, Reuters uh, will never include links in any of their articles, even to a primary source. And, and I, maybe they have the same attitude my editor had. But 
it, it, it really irritates me because I check a lot of links. I always want to know the documentation. I want to know where this information came from and whether it's from a quality source. In the old days, you, you check the footnote. You know, you look at the bottom of the page and there was your documentation. And even if you never checked the source, you could tell, okay, this is from a reputable publication or you could see who the author is and say, okay, that's a reputable person or something like that that would give you some confidence that, that the information you're reading was, uh, uh, could be trusted. Uh, obviously, nobody uses footnotes anymore. Academics hardly use them as much as they used to. And, uh, and of course, but we have these links which theoretically provide that same purpose. Excuse me. But uh, very, very often I will go to some, I'll click on a link and it will be to a secondary source. It won't even be to the original reporter who broke a story. I mean, it would take, I th I, some people have an idea, well, I don't like to link to publications that are behind a paywall or that require registration. I'd rather link to some easy public source that people will have no difficulty uh, getting to. But that's not the way I think. I want to see, you know, the documentary source or at least the original source, news source, where this article appeared or this information appeared, and it appears to me that a great many reporters simply don't, they're just too lazy, you know, they just don't want to be bothered. And, or, or maybe an editor, or for all I know an intern, just stuck this into their story and the, the reporter didn't have anything to do with it. But I think that this is a terrible, terrible waste of an extremely valuable function, which is documentation. You know, uh, and, and I think that one of the reasons the media have lost a lot of credibility and maybe a lot of viewer uh, readers is because they have lost credibility. People just don't necessarily believe uh, what they have to say. And I think that there's ways they could, they could deal with this. For example, this has been a, a pet peeve of mine for many years. A reporter will go and do an interview with somebody, whoever, uh, and uh, and then you get a couple of quotes, you know, in the article that they have, you know, chosen from this interview. But how do you know whether these statements were made in or, or quoted accurately or in context, uh, <coughs> or or what other information was uh, obtained in the course of this interview that that the reporter didn't think was important enough uh, to bother mentioning? Well, why, you know, it's very easy to convert, you know, voice into text and to they could post the entire interviews. Now, every once in a while, they will do this, and it's, very, it's always very useful when they do. Uh, for example, last week, the New York Times interviewed Donald Trump, and they did post the entire transcript. And what you oftentimes find is that they buried the lead, that there was really much more interest, interesting information that was left out of the article than was included. And I don't understand why papers just don't post this stuff routinely. It's added value for the reader, and, and it would provide a very important service in terms of giving the reader confidence that this interview was, was not a gotcha interview, that the, the, the quotes are honest and, and in context and so on. And as we know, the president will, has been known to deny uh, saying things that we have tape video of, of him saying. And so it's very, it's becoming even more important not to, 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 to be able to document 
the things that are being said. Um, another thing I talk about in the book that I, I found to my, uh, really kind of surprising that so many people commented on this to me, but I talk about libraries, uh, which I think a lot of people have the idea that's just where you go to get books. And if I'm, people, let's face it, not, no offense, but people are not quite as interested in books as they used to be. Uh, but one of the things that, that, that libraries have, public libraries, uh, is online databases, you know, that the, where you can go on and have access to information that would be extremely costly if, if it was available at all uh, through a, a Google search or something like that. Now, my familiarity is with the Fairfax County Library in, uh, in Virginia, and I use that almost every single day. Uh, there are very valuable webs, uh, uh, ser uh, search engines for, for academic journals and uh, for data of various kinds uh, that is extremely valuable and I use quite often. And I think uh, people just literally don't know that these things are there because the libraries don't advertise them very much. Why, I don't know. But uh, I, I, I did a little bit of a search around, and uh, every state, not necessarily every local library, but every state has a state library, and they have many of these same databases. Some have even better ones. Uh, I discovered that uh, if you're an alumnus of a university, in many cases, you can have some access to the university's library's databases. Uh, and again, you'll have access to publications that you wouldn't otherwise have, or ones that, that are too prohibitively expensive. For example, the Fairfax County Library gives me access to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Every issue of the Washington Post back to whenever, the 1800s, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and other publications uh, that uh, uh, you might like to be able to read, but you, you simply can't afford them. I mean, the New York Times costs me uh, $15 a month. Uh, I can afford that, but, you know, a lot of people, that would be, you know, more than they could possibly afford. I know people are always complaining when I link to something on Twitter and they say, oh, that's to, uh, you know, the New York Times and I can't access that. I've already gotten my five free articles for the month or whatever the deal is. Uh, but they would have, they could get it for free through their library if, if, if they wanted to go to the trouble. Um, well, th there, there's a lot of other stuff. Um, that I could talk about that's in the book, but I tried to write something really genuinely for the average citizen that would teach them a little bit about some of the ways reporters think. For one, here, here's, uh, I have to mention this because it comes up so often. People always ask me, well, why do reporters seem uh, to write, do this, what was commonly called he said, she said journalism? They say, why can't they go to the trouble of of telling us what they think or, or, or doing some reporting to be able to differentiate between two different sources that give two different answers to a question. You know, a good example would be, you know, you're, you're a reporter covering Hillary Clinton's campaign and she says something or somebody on our staff says something and, and you, maybe you, you agree with it, maybe you, you think it's completely wrong, but rather than do some reporting and uh, analysis and say, okay, here's what I was told. I've looked into this, and this is what it, what the truth is. They'll they'll go to the Trump campaign and say, here's what Hillary Clinton just said. What is your response? And then you'll see Clinton said this, Trump said that, and that's all you get. You know, he said, she said, and and the reason is really very simple. 
It all has to do with access. You see, in the old days, the reporters had the power because the politicians had to go to them to get their message out. They had to go through the media, and the reporters were the gatekeepers and the editors. Now it's the other way around. The, re the, 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 the media need access. They need quotes. They need inside gossip. They need information from inside the White House, from inside a campaign. And the only way they can get it is if the, the person who's willing to give it to them trusts that it will be used exactly the way they want it used. And they will read the story the next day and say, was I quoted accurately? Did they uh, put in some snide remark uh, that would lead me to believe they are hostile to our agenda? And so the best way the, the reporter can protect himself is by just being sten stenographic. You just take down and report precisely what they say. And, to, and if you want to uh, have some sort of analysis or, or, uh, or somebody to contradict or, 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 or fact check, uh, you, you have to quote somebody else maybe saying what you're thinking, you see. And this was a role that I know I often played uh, with various reporters. I could tell they were calling me because to say what I knew they were thinking but could not put into their own words because they weren't allowed to interject themselves or seem to interject themselves into the story. And so the balance of power has very much changed uh, to the detriment, I think, of truth. Now, what, re what publications have done to deal with this problem is they've created fact-checking sites. And the Washington Post site is uh, run by one of their oldest and most uh, you know, experienced reporters, a guy named Glenn Kessler. But there are many other organizations and, and, and groups that do this polit polity fact and various things like this. And, and what they will do is they will then subsequently look at some of these stories, evaluate them, subject them to analysis and data and so on or, and so forth. And they will render a judgment that, oh, what this candidate said the other day is, is just a rank lie or maybe it's a little white lie or maybe they were just bending the truth a little bit or whatever it is they do. And, but the problem with that is fact-checking, to my mind, is journalism. It's not a separate branch of the media that, that's over here in its own little ghetto by itself. It should be, it's integral to every single thing that is, is written in a newspaper or reported on television. Fact-checking is journalism. If you're not doing fact-checking, what are you doing? You know, uh, and so, uh, I mean, we can look up official statements, you know, from the White House and other places and read what they have to say. We don't need a third party to, to download that information for us and tell us what, what was said. Maybe in the old days you did. I mean, the reason you had White House correspondents is because they would issue press releases and they'd only have a few dozen copies and you'd have to get one to know what the president was saying and you'd have to report it. Uh, for, for your readers, but of course now everybody can download that information uh, for themselves. They don't need the intermediary. Yet a lot of what the, the people in the White House do is they just sit around waiting for handouts. You know, it's, it's really a kind of a criminal waste of resources in a time when resources are scarce. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I've talked on a little longer than I intended to, and I do want to take some questions, and as we said, you need to go to the microphones I don't think you necessarily have to introduce yourself, but feel free to so do so if you'd like.
so this is really more about your transition from a conservative Republican mm -hmm. to an independent. Yes. So what happened to the Republican wing of the, or the, the Reagan wing of the, of the Republican Party? And, and do you feel like a lot of your political associates agree with you? Well, I don't have nearly enough time uh, to answer that question. <laughs> uh, perhaps I'll write a book about it someday. But, uh, you know, they're, 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 you know, as, as my wife always says, uh, you know, she didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left her. I was very comfortable working for Ronald Reagan. I felt that the Reagan wing of the party uh, is perhaps more conservative than I am today, but I never thought it was irresponsible. I thought Reagan was a good president. I think he was very much underrated uh, by his enemies. And uh, now that we've seen the people who have, who have come after him, I think there's a, probably a lot of people on the, on the left who have greater appreciation for Reagan than, than they did at the time. But he was a serious, responsible person, and you know, and maybe they have them here in this uh, in this store. But there, there's some books that were edited by uh, 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 Annalise Anderson and uh, Martin Anderson, and a woman named Skinner, whose name I don't remember her first name. But anyway, they went into the Reagan Library and found, during the time between when he was governor and the time he started running for president, he gave radio, he did radio shows, and and he would just read a little script it wasn't like a call-in call show and he wrote a syndicated newspaper columns and they found the drafts of these speeches or these radio scripts and the the, the 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 columns that he wrote all by his lonesome self he had no research assistance or anything in in his own hand on you know legal paper and they and with notes in it about where he got the information he was very very well read and and knew an enormous amount about public policy quite apart from his time as governor and I, I just think you know it would be really nice if we had somebody like that you know as president again so I don't know I don't I can't say anything more without going down a path that will take too long <laughs> hi um, Phil Gale what's actually I'm a journalist so I appreciate uh -huh. getting, getting your thoughts as a source behind a lot of journals um, Comment and a, and a quick question, if I could. Uh, I, I guess I take a lot of your things that he said. She said a lot of things. I really appreciate what you said. I think are needed. Um, the one thing I would stress is that journalists is not a monolithic group. All all newspapers, magazines are not alike, as you know. All journalists on the same organization are not alike. Um, the deadline pressures. Um, could you talk about with that belief that what what jur journalism out there? Do you, do you look to? What is good? I guess what I would say is that there are journalists out there mm -hmm. today who are not on a uh, deadline every 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Great ProPublica is a, thing, yeah. a nonprofit that does large investigative mm -hmm. stories that run in media all over the country, and they, and they give it away mm -hmm. for free. Um, the impact of journalists, you know, the, wa you know, the Washington Post, look at the impact they had on the Alabama Senate race. So you don't think the Washington Post is necessary? Look who, the, look who won the Senate race. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was a little bit of impact from some journalism there. Um, you know, question about yeah. is it impacting the administration? Ask Tom Price what, on the former health mm -hmm. HHS secretary mm -hmm. what impact journalism have and are we seeking yeah. truth? So with that in mind, yeah. what areas of journalism do you look at as, you know, there is some good out there. It's not all yeah. just chasing. Well, one of the things that I do is I've tried to, one of the things I talk about in the book is kind of creating your own newspaper. And you can do this very easily through something called an RSS reader. 
which was kind of around a few years ago, and now people seem to have forgotten about it. But it's an extraordinarily useful tool. Uh, I use a, a one called Feedly, F-E-E-D-L-Y, Feedly. And what you do is you put in sources that, that, that interest you. Uh, for example, you know, you don't have to have er get everything that comes from the New York Times. You can just get only the stories about the economy or only the stories about politics or whatever. And it's brought to you directly. You don't have to go to the Times homepage to look and see what's new here. I already read that story. Is this one new? I can't tell, blah, blah, blah. This way, it, 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 the, the minute it's posted, it's sent to the reader. And, and you can find out something that uh, when it's available, the minute it becomes available. And so what you can do is you can kind of create your own virtual newspaper by saying, well, instead of reading the New York Times' political coverage, I'll, I'll read Politico's. And that gives me po my politics. Uh, maybe I prefer the Wall Street Journal's economic coverage, so I'll get that. And so you can put together bits and pieces of uh, publications out there that maybe you don't like in general, but do like some aspect of. And of course, you can do it for any number of things, not just the sort of things that we're talking about today, uh, sports, uh, you know, cooking, entertainment, uh, gossip, whatever. You can put together your own little newspaper. And similarly with Twitter, which I, I, I use quite a lot, say there's some publication that you generally don't like for some reason, say the Washington Post, but there's this one reporter there that you really like that reporter. You subscribe to her Twitter feed. And what you'll not only find out everything that she has written, because reporters are very, you know, they always repost their own stuff first and foremost, uh, but they will also post things that they think are interesting that perhaps they have vetted themselves so that you can trust the reporter that you trust to give you, to send you to another story, another reporter's work that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise seen uh, that, that will then come to your attention. So you can have uh, a whole list of reporters or commentators that you particularly like and just have them all in your Twitter feed and that way you can get stuff from the people you have grown to trust. I think of it as similar to a movie reviewer, you know, you, you're, you, you don't want to go to a movie and not be, uh, not, not enjoy yourself, but, but over time you learn a certain reviewer has the same taste you have. And if they say this is a good movie, I really liked it, then I'll go see it and more than likely I'll be satisfied. And it's the same thing with reportage on any number of other subjects that you, you learn to trust and learn to, uh, to, to uh, use the material that this person has vetted and curated and chosen to call to your attention. And so I think between Twitter and an RSS reader, you can create a virtual news source for yourself that exactly suits your interests with only sources that you feel comfortable uh, trusting. Pete? I'm Pete Davis. Uh, Bruce and I worked together as economists on Capitol Hill and formulated the Reagan tax cuts. <laughs> and you made a very important point, distinction between primary sources, data, documentation, mm -hmm. uh, secondary sources, mm -hmm. and just fabrications. Right. And so uh, when you came to me and, and said, gee, let's do this tax cut, I had an actual computer model with mm -hmm. real tax returns on it, and we kicked it around and came up with real data and how much it would cost and who would be affected and so on. Well, now 
try to find things on the White House website. Uh, look at the budget cuts for the IRS SO, uh, statistics of income. Look at the budget cuts. We, we may have a failed census. Um, could you could you elaborate on on how important it is to have real data? Well, I, I, I you know I was asked you know what sources I rely upon, and I, I one reason I don't use the media for in some ways the way I used to is because I do go to the primary sources. Uh, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics website is still very good. You might as well go there to find out the unemployment rate. Why read a news report about about it? You know, there, there's really no need to do that. And, of course, you know, uh, the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis and uh, the Federal Reserve and so on. Uh, but you're right about the deteriorating quality of government data sources. I mean, uh, there was a, a study on the Treasury website, as you know, that, that they got rid of because it flatly contradicted the administration's line on uh, who, who benefits from corporate tax cuts. The Treasury's own economists had done a study saying, what was it, 17 percent of the benefits of a corporate tax cut end up going to workers. And they said, well, we don't agree with that, even though our own people did this and it was based on, as you say, real uh, data from tax returns and uh, and so on. Uh, the, so they just they just deep sixed it. Of course, a lot it had already been published in an academic journal, so it wasn't lost. But it's uh, but it's it's stupid from them to do this sort of thing. And you're right about the census. It's something that worries me a great deal. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. Um, I, I have some familiarity with data sources in foreign countries like China, where sometimes you have to find your own data. Uh, for example, in China. The GDP numbers were so unreliable that economists were going to the power companies to find out how much electricity they were creating in, in a given month and using that as a kind of proxy for, you know, the manufacturing sector. And, you know, so if a lot of electricity was being used, maybe manufacturing was doing well and so on. And I think, unfortunately, economists are probably going to have to do a lot more of that in the future. Uh, I, I, I don't know what else to say. Hi. I, <clears throat> I wanted to first thank you for your uh, advocacy for just media literacy in general. Um, uh, don't throw things, but I'm in the social media space. I got in really early on and was a huge advocate, and I curse it, especially uh, often when it comes to media. And so when you were talking a lot about, <laughs> I, I thought a lot of the things you said today applied to kind of uh, reading established media and some of the different things to know of when you're reading that. But I think there's a big difference between um, journalism seen today, online social media. You have established pl places that have editorial processes they go through, and then you have online where anybody can start a website, abc.com.co, mm -hmm. try to look like ABC. Yeah. Uh, start another name or hyper-partisan sites right. that have no editorial process. And, and unfortunately, in this last election, uh, the months leading yeah. up to uh, the election, that type of news, that like actu actual fake news, it's funny to say that, um, outperformed uh, more established sources. And so I think there's this line of like media literacy for and holding established media organizations accountable. But there's mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, when you need to cut sugar, you don't go shoot heroin, right? And so, like, how do we, is there any advice that you have for in a, in a day of, of helping people mm -hmm. understand the difference between uh, some of these sources mm -hmm. and how to consume that and then and some of the other kind of legitimately fake mm -hmm. or super hyper-partisan sources? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up the social media because there was a very interesting study out just today that was 
referenced in the New York Times where some political scientists uh, had looked at the spread of fake news through social media, and they found that w Facebook was the biggest yeah. problem area. And uh, they also found that, that, I mean, if you talk to people in social media or, or in the t tech industry, they think, well, we'll just come up with a fix, you know, some kind of software thing, whatever. Well, fa Facebook tried to do that. They came up with a way you could flag stories in your news feed that you thought were fake news, and they would, I guess, investigate them somehow or other and, and make a determination. They'll put a little tag or something on the story, so if pe other people saw it, they would say, this has been deemed to be fake news. What it turned out is people read those stories even more than they did before they started flagging them. Yeah, and and unfortunately, this is uh, uh, relates to other phenomena that I've read in in the psychological literature and elsewhere, where when you where they've sat down with people to try to talk to them about fake news stories that for some reason or other they believe, and they discovered that in the process of refuting them, they came to believe them even more. Now, what what do you do when you've sim when you've lost the ability to use logic and evidence in support of yeah. of your position? You're you're just adrift without a compass. I don't know what to do about that. I have some hope that it's a generational problem, that some of the peop old people, that is to say people older than me, uh, <laughs> the, the threshold for being old it rises. You know. uh, but, uh, but I think there's a lot of unsophisticated people out there. One would hope younger people are more sophisticated. They can tell the difference. But I, don't, I haven't seen any actual data to yeah. confirm that. I just don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that the various tools that, that help spread fake ne me uh, uh, news can stop it. For example, when you come across a story that, that's, that sounds, oh, boy, this is really interesting. I'm going to click this on. Well, but, well, you know, if you can just get people to slow down for a few seconds and go to Google News or or search you know, some aspect of that story to see if anybody else is talking about it. Now, you know, it might be the very first report, okay? And maybe you, know, you lose a few seconds telling your friends about it, but more often than not, you're gonna protect yourself from spreading a lie that you, that's very, very hard to take back. Uh, some of you may have saw, uh, seen the other day, who was it, Jenna Fisher, is that her name? She used to be on The Office, an actress. Anyway, she posted something on Twitter that turned out to be not true, and she wrote a nice little response uh, the next day apologizing for doing so. But, I mean, how many people do that, you know? Uh, it's, you know, you ha uh, I very, unfortunately, maybe I seldom do that. You have a score on the profiles for how many fake stories you shared, and maybe people will stop sharing as uh, much. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you. All right. I think you're next. Question. My name is Jim Berlant. I'm living in Texas, just back here visiting. You mentioned earlier about uh, the Build Your Own newspaper with the yeah. sites like Feedly. One concern I would have, and I'd like to ask your opinion on how to avoid the potential pitfall, is building your own Fox News or building something, regardless of what your bias is, that you're only going to be getting mm. something within your own epistemically closed uh, set of... Uh, well, there's that. nothing you can do about that, but that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's freedom of the press, you know. And people, I have, I wrote a paper about Fox News once uh, in which I t said that it was essentially self-brainwashing. 
but but you know, but this is actually rather important. You see, one of the reasons why conservatives and, and let's be honest, it's it's a problem mainly on the right side of the political spectrum to be so gullible about some of these stories, is because you know dating back, some of us here in this room are old enough to remember Spiro Agnew when he gave a speech attacking the media in 1969. I think this is when he said nattering nabobs of negativism. Uh, but uh, but it, it, at that time, the media was in a much more powerful position, and it was, frankly, uh, somewhat more to the left than it is today, certainly to the left of the Republican Party and, uh, and Spiro Agnew. And, and so uh, th in, in all the years since then, I think conservatives just grew up all their lives with a chip on their shoulders about the, the bias of the media against them. And even once that bias disappeared, the chip on the shoulder was still there, you see. So people talk about the left-wing New York Times, and I say, they must be reading a different paper than I'm reading, uh, and things of this sort. But, but, but my point is that as a result of, of this attitude, conservatives have long cultivated an alternative media, long before Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and Breitbart. You know, they, they were more they, uh, willing to listen to you know, little newsletters and things like Human Events and National Review or the, the rare uh, pu uh, uh, major newspaper. I remember the, 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 the Richmond Times, no, the, it was Richmond News Leader, the afternoon newspaper that was, was even more conservative than the morning paper, and people would subscribe to that. I rem and I remember when I, uh, when I was a kid, I lived in Dallas, the Dallas Morning News in those days was a very conservative newspaper. And you know, people would seek out this sort of thing, and uh, and and and, and w learn to trust non-mainstream sources is what I'm trying to get at. And I think that has still come down to the present day. Just going to make a quick comment, just in the interest of time, I'm going to call these the last three questions. Hi, uh, my my reading of your material goes way back to when you were writing editorials for the Wall Street Journal, uh -huh. and a particular interest is tax policy. Uh -huh. And the scoring, the static and dynamic scoring. I talked to Pete Davis. <laughs> he used to yeah. do the scoring. <laughs> um, so my question today, so you, there's always, like, you, you look at a source mm -hmm. and you say, well, are they biased in their modeling? And um, so uh, I'm interested in w what would you say are the best sources for uh, especially dynamic scoring? Dynamic scoring takes into account the... Uh, actual effects of be on behavior mm. uh, when people respond to the incentives or disincentives provided by a change in tax policy. Uh, what would you say are the best models so that you can go to that website? In particular, men mention whether you, you, you find it useful to go to the Tax Institute, mm. for example, and any other particular well, sources. Well, I would say that the Tax Policy Center is, would you agree, is the well, but the Tax Foundation is is a, a conservative organization, which does. Okay. Well, you know more about that than I do. So the Tax Foundation and the Tax Policy Center, not Those, the Tax Institute. No, I mean there is a place called the Tax Institute, but that's it's not, not going to give you any useful information. Okay. But the but see the problem is that if you if you feed in a particular GDP growth rate. Any model is going to give you the same, you know, the same results. The question is, where did where did that GDP number come from? 
and uh, and what the administration decided to do is they simply made it up out of thin air. They just said, if the economy grows twice as fast as it's ever grown before, we'll get twice as much revenue as we got. No, I understand you know, that. I mean, but they, they you, just but th you do have to feed in some number. Well, that's true. But, but that uh, number is partly look, the effect of the tax policy itself. Yes, but there's there's debate about all these things. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office, I think most economists would rely upon. They have done any number of studies over the years comparing the growth effects of different policies. They're, they have a, a book they put out every year on reducing the deficit that often has a lot of uh, data in there about, for example, the impact of a tax increase. Well, these numbers tend to be symmetrical, so you can just change the sign and find out what the model would tell you about a, a tax cut of the same magnitude. And there's a, a, a table in the budget, or at least they used to be, that would tell you, okay, if interest rates are 1% higher over the next 10 years, how much will that add to you know spending? And there's a lot of you know uh, 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 back of the envelope kinds of places you can find that kind of data. But in general, I would rely upon uh, the Congressional Budget Office, the Joint Committee on Taxation, the Tax Policy Center, and uh, the Tax Foundation. You know, with the caveat that they are going to, if if you if if you've got a range of answers, and this one is good for the Republican Party, and this one isn't, this will be their answer. They, they tend to cherry pick uh, for the benefit of their own, you know, philosophical point of view. Uh, an honest answer would be, I mean, the, the, the honest answer to almost every tax question is, I don't know. But nobody, <laughs> nobody gives that answer. And all, all of those sources give dynamic scoring. To some extent. I mean, you, you, one of the problems with dynamic scoring is you can only do it every once in a while because not because you're doing a tax bill that's big enough to affect the macro economy. I mean, if a tax bill is only, you know, doing a few billion dollars worth of tax increasing or tax cutting, you're not going to get a dynamic effect. You know, it's just too small. So you have so I mean, how many years has it been since we did a a tax cut of the kind we just did? You have to go back at least to the early years of the Bush administration, right? So, uh, uh, you know, it, you're not going to get the opportunity to even be able to study dynamic scoring except once every, you know, dozen or so years. Uh, I would mention, by the way, uh, is, since the Republicans continue to call their monstrosity tax reform, if, if you look up an article by uh, Alan Auerbach and Joel Slemrod in the Journal of Economic Literature, 1995, 1996, thereabouts, they did a very, very thorough study of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which was a big piece of legislation. The corporate tax rate was reduced by 12 percentage points, from 46 to 34 percent. The top income tax rate was reduced to 28 percent, much lower even than, than they've done this time. And they did a big study trying to find out what the economic effects were, and it turned out it was zero. Nothing bad, nothing good, maybe everything washed. Maybe all the bad stuff in the legislation co was compensated for by the good stuff, but the net effect was it had no effect on the economy. All it did was cause people to do a lot of uh, tax planning. And Marty Lobel is around here. He probably remembers uh, doing a lot of work uh, to help his clients. Uh, but it, 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 you're, you can't just assume because a, a, a tax bill is a big bill affecting a lot of revenues and a lot of industries that it's going to have a big effect. Sometimes it had no effect at all. 
I'm going to stand up here for a while. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to hold up people. But um, I like to add just a couple of points about newspapers and newspapers now and then. When I worked on Capitol Hill in the 70s, we used to uh, agree that if we were honest, we'd sit down and yeah, we generally believed everything in the New York Times and the Washington Post, except the stuff we were actually directly involved in. Because uh -huh. uh, the facts can be correct, but just the way they're presented can change the meaning. But meanwhile, I don't know quite what you mean by revealing their sources, because Newspaper articles aren't generally footnoted, and they may make a reference to a document that's printed in full, but that's fairly rare, so. Well, I'm, I'm referring to the current year in which almost everything is available online, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and what that eliminated. I mean, it used to be the report editors probably spent 90% of their time cutting articles down to fit in the literal amount of space we got 12 mm -hmm. inches for this story and sometimes they would just cut from the bottom up you know and uh and yeah and i'm just saying they're not space constrained anymore mm -hmm. they could provide more uh -huh. information more documentation and tr uh, or, or just provide better links to these sources because i think it's in their own interest to 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 improve the quality of their credibility for the benefit of their skeptical readers. And let's face it, there's a lot of skeptical readers out there. You you know, you just mentioned, oh, I, I know something about this particular story. I was there, and this isn't right, you know. Uh, well, I think people probably have more access to the news because we have 24-7 cable networks, and you can watch, you know, that silly woman in the White House give her press briefing every day, and you can watch it from beginning to end, uh, without any trouble. It used to be, if you weren't physically in the room, that mm -hmm. was the only way you knew what, sh what the press secretary said. You had to trust that the reporter is going to tell you what you, want, you, you would have wanted to get out of the, the briefing if you yourself had been there. Mm -hmm. That is, they were standing in your place telling you what you would, they, they think or hope you would like to know. And now you don't have to do that. You don't have to read somebody's write-up of, uh, of the press secretary's uh, uh, pre uh, news conference. You can just watch it. It's, it's on YouTube, you know. And so I'm, I'm just saying there's a different dynamic here. And I think the media could help itself oh. get r people to trust them more uh, if they would provide more documentation. There's, there's, there's no space constraint to not do so. That's all I'm really saying. Oh, I see. Thank Hi, thank you so much for speaking tonight. Uh, someone earlier asking a question used the word fabulation, um, which is a word I personally love, although not necessarily in this context. Um, but I do believe we are, we are such creatures of emotion and storytelling. And I wondered if you had advice for readers on how to demand engaging stories that are still well documented, um, but we do expect to be engaged and interested. Mm -hmm. And how do we balance that as readers and as writers? Well, that's interesting. Um, I suppose in theory, the market kind of takes care of it. I mean, people are you know acutely aware of how many clicks their stories get, and presumably they try look and say, "Oh, geez, this one got way more readers than than my last one. What did I say? What did I do that's different?" 
and hopefully they, they can kind of learn from that. I certainly try to. But, uh, but the, the fact is, uh, a lot of it's just luck, you know? Uh, you just happen to be there when a story broke and you were the first one to be able to report it. So you got a lot of links, even if your writing was pretty crappy. Uh, now, one of the things that, that this, I don't know whether this is still true, but I mean, reporters used to not really even have to be writers. They had what, what were called rewrite desks. And a reporter would call in and give the basic facts to uh, an editor uh, or a, a writer who would then do the literal writing. And uh, so I think there's probably a lot of Pulitzer Prizes that were given out over the years uh, to people who didn't literally write the stories. They may have gotten the, the facts and broken the information and so on, but they didn't do the literal writing. Somebody else who's a much better writer than they are <laughs> did the actual writing. And uh, uh, so, so I, don't, I don't know whether those, that kind of function can even exist in this era where we don't even have photographers anymore. You know, you have to take your own pictures with your, with your phone, you know, if you want to have some illustration to go along with your story. Everybody has to be a jack of all trades, and now you have to do video, too, and post that on. And they like video because it keeps more eyeballs on the site, you know, as you watch through this, uh, this stuff. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, being a jack of all trades is fine, but being a specialist is better. And reporters can't, don't have the luxury of being specialists anymore and saying, okay, I'm just covering the house side of Capitol Hill. Now you gotta cover both sides. You gotta know way more about everything that's going on and uh, so on. And it's, it, they're spread too thin to, to do a good job. And the most important thing that's being lost, in my opinion, is investigative reporting, uh, which might take months and months of serious uh, legwork and phone calling and all kinds of stuff that uh, uh, newspapers can't afford to do anymore. They only have so many staff to cover what's happening today. And that, I think that's bad for society. Okay. Thank you. How about one more round of applause for Bruce Bartlett? <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.